Well, it's a new year. Is it going to be a new you? You know, many of us think about making changes to our lives. When the calendar turns, there's nothing particularly important about January 1st, but for whatever reason, we tend to make all sorts of resolutions. We think about how we could have a better year, how we could be better me's, right? Uh, we we want to think about, well, what could I do this year that would make me healthier or maybe just happier? <laughs> what could I do this year? What changes could I make that would make me more successful or more content? And then we set about making those changes for a week or two <laughs> until our resolutions fail and we fall back into the status quo. I wonder if any of you, as you've thought about New Year, New You, I wonder if any of you thought about becoming more spiritual this year. If that made it into your list of resolutions. What makes us spiritual? You know, there are lots of ideas out there, especially here in Portland. Everybody has an idea of what it means to be a spiritual person or to be spiritual. But I'm not out there in Portland. I'm here in church on a Sunday morning. And most of you here are Christians and were raised in some sort of Christian tradition or another, probably. That's not everybody here, but it's a lot of people here. And for that reason, I suspect that for many sitting here, being spiritual is associated more with what you don't do than with what you do. Christian spirituality has long been associated with something we call asceticism. It's a fancy word. That, that simply means uh, uh, the, the denial, the, the abstinence from emotional desires, indulgences in the effort to be more spiritual. It's not just Christian spirituality. I prayed for the Buddhist world this morning. Actually, asceticism is a mark of spirituality in every major world religion. So maybe there's something to it. Maybe being spiritual really is about self-denial and abstinence. Well, this morning we're picking back up our series in 1 Corinthians. We, we, we took a couple of weeks off. We're, we're coming back to our series in 1 Corinthians entitled United We Stand. As a church, we should be united in God's calling on our lives. And that calling is definitely to be spiritual people. God calls us to be spiritual people, people that are marked by our closeness to God, that, that are marked by, by, by being characterized by God, who is himself spirit. But what if we've misunderstood what that means? What if we've misunderstood how being spiritual happens? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, this is found on page 1014. 1014. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, we're going to take two weeks to get through this entire chapter. This morning, I'm only going to deal with the first 24 verses. So cha chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. I want to start just by reading part of the first verse. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about. All right, we're going to stop right there. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about. Right, this marks a major transition in Paul's letter. So for those of you that this is your first Sunday here, like you're going to get a little bit of review. For those of you that have been following along this whole series, I want you to notice this. This is a big transition. Paul has been arguing for the unity of the church in Corinth, and he has been addressing things that were reported to him, right? Some people had come to him from Corinth and they said, Paul, you would not believe what's going on. 
And they've reported various things. And he's been responding to those things because they're threatening the church's unity. He's talked about factionalism and partisan, you know, partisanship. He, he's, he's talked about tolerating unrepentant sin. He's, he's talked about the fact that they're suing each other and that there's kind of rampant sexual immorality. All of this was reported to him. But it, it appears that the people that came with this report also came with a letter that the Corinthians had written to Paul. And, and now he turns to address the issues that they have written to him about. And this is going to characterize most of the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. And he's going to, they, they've written to him about all sorts of things. So he's, he's going to address marriage and sex and divorce. That's today. Uh, he, he's going to talk about grocery shopping. He's going to talk about dinner parties. He's going to talk about gifts. He's going to talk about all sorts of things. But all of those things are actually related to the main thing that he's going to address from, from right here, chapter 7, verse 1, really all the way through to the end of chapter 15. And, and that's the question of what it means to be spiritual. Now, he's already introduced this idea, right? The, the Corinthians, as we know, man, they are proud, they are boastful. They've been boasting about all sorts of things, but it kind of comes down to this. They've been boasting over who's more spiritual. Well, I'm more spiritual because I'm with Paul, or I'm more spiritual because I'm with Peter, or I'm more spiritual because sin doesn't bother me, right? There are all these things. And, and he said to them already, I wanted to talk to you as spiritual people, but you're not. You're like babes in Christ. You're actually fleshly. Well, it seems that they have written to him about a whole bunch of things that they're arguing about. And it, and it all comes down to, well, who's right? Who's right on this issue? Who's right on that issue? Because, because that means we're more spiritual. They want Paul to settle the debate. And Paul says, and this will come as no surprise to you if you've been following along. You guys are thinking about it all wrong. You have no idea what it means to be spiritual. Now, this is a, as I said, this is going to take us from chapter seven all the way to the end of chapter 15. He's going to be addressing lots of different issues. So for the next number of weeks, I'm going to be doing two things in these sermons. We're going to be thinking about the specific teaching related to the issue that they've raised. But we're going to again and again relate it back to this bigger question that Paul is arguing. What does it mean to be spiritual? And, and this morning, in the section that we're going to look at, here's what he's saying to them. It's not what you give up, but who you give yourself to that makes you spiritual. It's not what you give up, but who you give yourself to that makes you, or we might say marks you as spiritual. All right, so... What we're going to do in, in the first part of this passage, uh, chapter 7, is we're, we're going to kind of walk through it, and we're going to answer the question, what makes you spiritual, by considering what does not, what does not make you spiritual. So what makes you spiritual? Well, first, it's not your sex life. It's not your sex life. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse one, and yes, the Sunday before Christmas, I was talking about sex. And so, yes, the Sunday after New Year's, I am again talking about sex for my sins, I think. Some of you got that joke. Chapter seven, verse one. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. But because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it is better to marry than to burn with desire. All right, uh, we'll, we'll stop there. This is the first thing that he's addressing. Uh, translations differ on that first sentence. Some of your translations might say it's not good for a man to use a woman for sex. Others might say uh, it's not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. The, the most literal translation, some of you may have that, might just say it's not good for a man to touch a woman. So different, different ways of translating the, the phrase, but, but the point is clear. Some of the Corinthians have decided that sexual abstinence, even in marriage, is the height of spirituality. It's just like better to not have sex at all, even if you're married. Now, this might explain why some have been resorting to prostitutes. We saw that back in chapter 6, verse 15. We don't know. What we do know is that there is a long tradition within Christianity of associating voluntary celibacy with spirituality. This is very much practiced in the Roman Catholic church today where priests are not allowed to marry. You've got monks, you've got nuns that take voluntary vows of celibacy. Well, Paul disagrees. Paul disagrees. Now I want to be careful. He doesn't attack celibacy outright. Celibacy characterizes his own life, as we see there in verse 7. I wish that all people were as I am. And he's actually for it, if possible. You see that in verse 8. I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to remain as I am. But this isn't because celibacy itself makes you more spiritual. There's nothing particularly praiseworthy in God's view on simply the act of abstaining from sex. Now, he's going to explain why next week. So I'm going to like reserve that whole conversation for the second half of chapter seven, where he really gets into it. And we'll talk about that next week. What he points out here is that for a married person, you don't belong to yourself. If you are married, you belong to your spouse. And and your spouse has a right, that's the language he uses, has a right to your body. And you, if you're married, have an obligation, a, a, a duty to give your body to them for their benefit. And this goes both ways. Look there at, at, at verse three. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Don't miss the mutuality here. And this mutuality is going to carry through really the rest, the rest of this chapter. Paul is not telling husbands in these verses that you get to demand sex whenever you want it and your wife has to agree. That is not what he's saying. What he's saying is you have to be offering your body to your spouse. Not, not you get to demand your spouse. Now the obligation is on you to be giving to your spouse. It, it, it's, it's not that you get to use them for your benefit. No, no, you're using yourself for their benefit. That's the way he's talking about this here. Paul frames this entire discussion in terms of a mutual love for one another in marriage that wants to protect each other from sexual temptation. He, he starts there, you see, in verse 2, by acknowledging how rampant sexual immorality is. It is common, he says. 
And, and, and he, he kind of concludes the discussion there in, in verse 5 by commanding that if you do mutually agree to a kind of a temporary abstinence, yeah, make sure it's temporary. Make sure it's short, as he says, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In fact, he's so concerned about the destructive nature of even temporary abstinence that he makes clear there in verse six, I'm not commanding you to be temporarily abstinent. I'm allowing it. This is, this is a concession. He, he wishes, he says there in, in verse seven, I, I, I wish that every Christian could be celibate. But, but he knows that that's a gift from God and God hasn't given everybody the same gift. Some have this gift, some have another. And so he says to married couples, you should be protecting each other's spiritual health by having sex. That is an apostolic command. Now, as soon as he says that, and we're going to come back to that in a minute, but let me just, because it's almost like he realizes, ooh, that was, <laughs> that was a, a really big thing that I just said. So he rushes on, lest he be misunderstood. And he says to the unmarried, in, in verse 8, like, look, if you're not married, either you're, you're never married or you were married, but you're single now, or, or you're a widow or a widower, if you can remain single and celibate, great, you should. It's better, he says. But if you don't have self-control, this is his language in verse 9, if you don't have self-control, you should marry and have sex because it's better, he says, to marry than to burn with lustful desires. Verse nine, Paul couldn't be clearer here. Abstinence from sex isolated in and of itself doesn't make you spiritual. Of course, he's already talked about this at the end of, Chapter six, sex outside of marriage is immoral and wrong. It is dangerous to your soul. It invites the judgment of God. He's, he's already made that point. He's making a different point now. He's saying that a celibate life characterized by lust is no more spiritual than a sexually immoral life. In this, he sounds a lot like Jesus. He said that when a man lusts after a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so just as married couples should protect each other by having sex, he, he says to the unmarried, you should protect yourself if, if your life is characterized by uncontrollable sexual desires and lust, you should protect yourself by pursuing marriage, you should get married. Strong, uncontrollable sexual desires, which is what Paul is talking about here, is pretty good evidence that God has not given you the gift of remaining single. Sometimes young people ask me, do, do I have the gift of singleness? I don't know. Like there's, there's not a, like an S on your forehead or something that reveals this. I don't know. You got to look at yourself. You got to look at your own life. You got to look at your own desires. Paul is not saying you're asexual. You have no sexual desires. To, to have sexual desires is just part of what it means to be human. He's, he's, he's really pointing to, are you able to control them? Because if you're not able to control them, then it's pretty clear God has not given you the gift of singleness. All right, how do we apply this? Well, first... If you're married, I don't need to know any more. Please don't come and talk to me about details I don't need to know. But what I can tell you is that if you're married, you should probably be having more sex than you are. Yes, your pastor just said that. <laughs> married people, you should probably be having more sex than you are currently. Sex inside of marriage is a good gift from God. 
And right here, Paul points to one of the reasons it's a good gift. It, it protects us from temptation because he made us sexual beings. We have sexual desires. We, we want to act on those sexual desires. And God gave us marriage as the right and appropriate place for those sexual desires to be expressed and satisfied. And, and so as inside of marriage, we have sex, we are protecting each other. This is a good thing. Now, it's not the, it's not the only reason that sex is good. Uh, there's, there's, there's procreation and the family, right? But, uh, the, the Bible talks about that in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There, there's also the way in which when a man and a woman in marriage come together and become one flesh, they are actually providing a, a picture of the spiritual union between Christ and the church, so, so our marriages are like a, a, a walking parable, a walking picture of the gospel itself. So th- there are lots of reasons that marriage and sex in marriage is good, but this is one of the reasons. And because sex is a good gift, you can be certain that Satan's trying to mess it up. Now, I used to do a lot of premarital counseling, especially when I was in DC. I let the, the, the younger pastors do it here. But back, back in the day, you know, I, I found myself, like, I was a broken record, but th- it had two tracks. If I'm talking to single people, it's like, don't have sex. Don't have sex. You're, you're, you're single. This is not the place to have sex. It is going to mess up your life. You, you're going you're gonna to be saddled with guilt. Like, it, it's not God's best for you. But, but to married people, I'm over here saying, you need to be having more sex. Like, I just, I just know. I know you need to be having more sex because I know that Satan wants to mess up sex however he can. So for single people, it's to encourage them and to tempt them into having it when they shouldn't. But for married people, it's to get in the way of it happening at all. And there's so many things that do that, right? Life is busy. Kids come along. You're tired. You're stressed because of work. There's sickness and illness. There's dinner parties and small group. And like, there's a thousand and one things that will get in the way. Brothers and sisters, you that are married, you probably need to be having more sex. Because Satan doesn't want you to. He wants you to be exposed to temptation. He, he wants to destroy the picture of Christ and his church in your marriage. Now, of course, if you're not married and you're able to control your sexual desires, Paul says, man, it's better to stay as you are. Like I said, we're going to look at that more next week. But, but, but let me say to everyone else, therefore, given what Paul's already said about singleness and how it's better to be single. If you're able, it's better. There should be no stigma to being single in the church, whether never married or formerly married. There should be no stigma to being single. According to Paul, according to the Bible, singleness is not a problem that needs to be solved or fixed. Singleness is a station of life that God puts us in at different stages. All of us as adults will spend time being single before marriage, many of us after marriage. Singleness is a station of life that God puts us in. And it's a station in life that both Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ himself share with us and honor. So while while there's nothing wrong with, with trying to set up your single friend with somebody that you think would be a good match, do understand, particularly married people, that their singleness is not the problem. And you and your matchmaking and good advice are not the solution. The problem 
I'm going to talk about this more next week. So I'm going to refrain myself and focus on the problem that Paul has in mind. The problem that Paul wants to solve is uncontrollable sexual desires that lead to lust and acting out in sexual immorality. Friend, if that's you, if that describes you, I want you to know that first there is grace for you. There is grace for you in your sexual sin. Whatever that sin happens to be, there is more there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. And so I want to encourage you to turn to Christ. If sexual sin characterizes your life, describes your life, if you are, if you are laboring under the guilt and burden of sexual sin, I want to encourage you to go to Christ. I also want to encourage you to, to talk to one of the elders. This is really what they're here for. They're not here to condemn you. They're, they're, they're not here to bring the hammer down on you. They're, they're here to gently help you. And dealing with sexual sin is basically impossible to do by yourself alone in privacy and secrecy. You're just not, it's because the problem's in you. So if you just keep it all to yourself and are private and secretive about it, then you're stuck with the problem. <laughs> we, we need the grace of Christ and we need the help of one another. So this is exactly what your elders are for. And I say that to both men and women. This is what your pastors are here for, but it's also what your small group is here for and what other older, wiser friends here in the church who've been walking with Christ longer are here for. Don't deal with this by yourself. You're not alone. So many of us have been there. You will find in this church a gracious, listening, sympathetic ear but one that doesn't want to leave you where you are, but wants to help you walk out of the snare that is sexual temptation into the freedom that is Christ. Now, another thing that you could do, you could pursue marriage. Now, I know, easy for you to say you're married, pastor. I get it. I get it that getting married is not entirely under your control. Somebody else has to agree. <laughs> I pray regularly that there's a woman out there for each of my sons who will agree. <laughs> You'll love my boy? <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> so it's not entirely in your control, but it is not entirely out of your control either. Um, some of you who are here today, who are single and believers, you need to get a divorce. You need to get a divorce from your list, from your checklist of the idealized, perfect person. If you don't find that person, you'd just be settling and you're not going to settle. You're married to that list and you need to divorce the list because he or she does not exist this side of heaven. I think some of you have lists that not even Jesus in the flesh would have met. <laughs> right? So you need to divorce your list. Others of you need to stop searching for a soulmate and instead search for a mate. It's okay right? Your, your spouse was not meant to satisfy everything in you and about you. You, you. you may find that there are other, you will find if you're married, all the married people here know this, there are other relationships in your life that you still need because your spouse simply cannot be everything for you. It's okay to search for a mate rather than a soulmate. In fact, I highly advise it. Another 
piece of advice. And this is, this is all advice that is under your control. I get it. Still, it's not all under your control. But in terms of things that are under your control as a single person, value godliness more than physical attractiveness. I'm not saying attraction doesn't matter. Attraction matters. It, it's, it's part of what goes into that whole sex thing that we were talking about a moment ago. So attraction matters, but it is not everything. And attraction, <laughs> attraction goes up and down over the course of a long marriage and physical beauty fades, bulges and stretch marks begin to appear on both men and women's bodies that you thought never would appear. Yeah, we, we're, none of us are the people that we were when we got married in our 20s. You shouldn't just value godliness more than physical attractiveness. You should be cultivating your sense of attraction to godliness. You know, a, attraction is something that can be cultivated. It's, it's not just this mysterious thing that just happens and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, yeah, yes, I, I get it. There, there are some things about attraction that are like that, but not everything. Attraction is actually under your control. And you can cultivate a sense of attraction to godliness. Or you could just keep doubling down on other things that are fleeting and that in the end will not finally matter for a marriage that's going to last the distance. Cultivate your sense of attraction to godliness. And, and then finally, again, seek out the counsel of others. Seek out the counsel of married people that have been married for a long time. Seek out the counsel of older Christians and then believe them. Accept their counsel. Trust them. There are some things that you only see once you're there. there there's some things you only understand once you've made the commitment and you're inside of the marriage. They have access to knowledge you don't have access to. So I'm not saying they're inerrant. I am saying you should trust them. They have visited a world that you haven't visited yet. And they have good things to say. All right. Giving up sex, abstinence from sex, does not make you spiritual. Instead, what we see here in these first nine verses is that giving your sex life to the Lord, to his authority. And if you're married, giving your body to your spouse, that's what marks you as spiritual. All right. So what makes you spiritual? Well, if it's not your sex life, second, it's not your marriage. It's not your marriage. Look at, look at verse 10. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But I, not the Lord, say to the rest, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. All right. Having just told single people that they should stay single if they can, Paul now immediately turns to the married people and says, yeah, but you guys, you guys need to stay married. I told the single people they should stay single if they can, but you, nope, not you. You stay married. And, and that applies whether you're married to a Christian or a non-Christian. Now, why does he pivot there? Well, maybe he pivots because he thinks people are going to misunderstand. I mean, he just said it's better to be single. And so he's afraid that these Corinthians, and I wouldn't put it past them, misunderstand them. And all of a sudden, there are all these divorces all over the church. Because Paul said, Paul said it's better to be single. Maybe that's why he pivots here. Or, or maybe 
That same ascetic tendency that's at work in the Corinthian church to, to forsake sex is, is causing some to take it all the way to its logical conclusion, to forsake marriage altogether. Well, what is certain from, from what he says here uh, in, in verse 14 is that at the very least, there are some who are married to non-Christians. And they're wondering if somehow or another, that marriage, now that they're married to somebody who's not in Christ, like he's just told them, you're part of Christ. Your body is now part of the body of Christ, but my unbelieving spouse is not. And, and maybe they're worried that somehow in this marriage, they're being defiled or being made unholy, less spiritual because of their marriage. Paul's response is unequivocal. If you are married, stay married. And that is not advice. That's a command. Paul starts by speaking to Christians married to fellow believers there in verses 10 and 11. And he refers to the specific commands of Jesus. You see that there. He says, not I, but the Lord. What he's referring to are the specific commands that we have recorded for us in the gospels in Matthew chapter five and Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 16. Now he's not referring to those chapters and verses because none of those gospels have been written yet. But the oral tradition, the sayings of Jesus were well known and circulating in the church, and he's referring to them. Once again, I want you to notice the mutuality here, right? The wife is not to leave, or some of your translations may say separate from her husband, verse 10. And, and the husband is not to divorce his wife, verse 11. Now, I don't want you to let translations, I don't want, I don't want translations to mislead you here. The word leave or separate and the word divorce, you know, he uses one word in verse 10 and a different word in verse 11. Those words are synonyms and they refer to the same thing. They're just two different words to refer to the same thing in the Greek language. And it's the thing that we call divorce separation, legal separation, which is like a thing in America unknown in the ancient world. There was no such thing as legal separation that wasn't divorce. There was either you're married or you're divorced. And they had several different words that they could use to talk about divorce. So that's what's going on here. According to Jesus, says Paul, Christians should stay married. And if they don't, they should remain single or else be reconciled with their spouse that they had divorced. Now, you'll, you'll note, those of you that are familiar with the passages from the Gospels that I quoted earlier, you'll note that Paul doesn't mention the exception that Jesus allows for divorce in the case of sexual immorality. I, I don't think that means that Paul is contradicting Jesus or disagreeing with Jesus with that as an, an exception. He's, he's just not really dealing with that. He's dealing with the main question that's been raised about whether it's more spiritual to be single or to be married. And so he's saying to the married, stay married. Then he turns in verse 12 to what he calls the rest. Well, who are the rest? Well, he's talked to the unmarried, the single in verses uh, eight and nine, and he's talked to Christians married to Christians in verses 10 and 11. So the rest are believers that are married to unbelievers. I think that's probably the majority of the church in Corinth. Christianity is so new, everybody's becoming a Christian as an adult, and there's no reason to think that just because one spouse becomes a Christian, the other one does. I have a feeling that the vast majority of marriages in the church at Corinth were these marriages in which a believer was married to an unbeliever. Now, Jesus didn't speak to that directly. He was giving his instructions about marriage in the context of of Israel and in the context of, 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 Jew, of Jewish, culture, Jewish culture and life. So Jesus didn't speak to it. So, so Paul does. He says, yeah, I'm, I'm no longer quoting Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm now telling you what to do. But, but don't misunderstand. He doesn't think that that means it's less authoritative. Paul is speaking as the apostle of Jesus. He is now speaking on Jesus' behalf. He's no longer quoting Jesus' words that he said uh, when, when he walked this earth. And, and what he says is if you're married to a non-Christian 
you must not divorce them just because they're an unbeliever. That's verses 12 and 13. Far from making the believer unholy or unclean, it's just the opposite. And he kind of needs to explain this, right? Because some of those folks are from a Jewish background. And in Old Testament law, if, uh, if a, a Jew voluntarily went out and married someone from the surrounding nations, that marriage made the Jew unclean. They were not to do that. But, but, but Paul is saying, actually, it works the other way now. They don't make you unclean or unholy. No, the believer makes the unbelieving spouse holy. Verse 14. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure anybody is quite clear exactly what that means. But Paul says it. In some way or another, the, the, the believing spouse is making the unbelieving spouse holy. And it's not just the spouse. He says this extends to their children in verse 14. Now, I know what he doesn't mean by this. He doesn't mean that just because you're married to a believer, you're saved. Or just, just because you're the child of a believer, you're saved. No, he, he makes that pretty clear in verse 16. You, you don't know if they're going to be saved or not. He might mean that both the marriage and the children of that marriage are legitimate rather than illegitimate. You know, so the thought might have been that being married to an unbeliever, when you become a believer, all of a sudden makes the marriage illegitimate. And of course, if the marriage is illegitimate, then the children are illegitimate. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not the case. He might mean that. It would be an unusual use of the word holy, though, to use the word holy for legitimate. I think he means at least that, but I suspect that he means maybe a little bit more. I suspect that what he is drawing on at this moment is something that he's already talked about. Back in chapter 6, he talked about the fact that as believers, our bodies are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, and that we are now united to Christ. We are part of his body. He talks about that in chapter 6, verse 15 and verse 19. And of course, he's just been talking about the way we get in marriage, we give our bodies to one another. It seems that he's suggesting that to be married to a believer or to be the child of a believer is to be brought into a sphere of blessing that flows from Christ through the believer. It, it seems, and I, I don't want to be dogmatic here, and if you disagree with me, that's fine. I might disagree with me tomorrow. But, but it seems that, that just as the gospel kind of overturned everything, right? So in the Old Testament, if you touched a leper, you became unclean. But Jesus comes and he touches the leper and the leper becomes clean. It's, it's almost, I think, by, by analogy, as if something similar is working here. Could it be that just as Jesus touched the leper and made him physically clean, so he continues to exert that kind of blessing towards those who are joined to us believers through marriage and family? Surely it is better to grow up in a Christian family where you're taught about the gospel, where, where, where you're exposed to the scriptures, than to grow up in a family where you're exposed to none of that. Surely it's better to be married to a believer who has the resources to forgive than to be married to somebody who does not. It's worth thinking about. Well, Paul knows that despite the blessing that comes by being married to being part of a family of a believer, Paul knows that an unbeliever might not like all the changes that occur now that their spouse has become a believer. Maybe now that their spouse is no longer willing to go along and participate with certain activities that they were accustomed to doing. 
Maybe they just don't like the fact that their spouse now has an allegiance to someone other than them, a higher allegiance to Christ. Whatever the reason, Paul understands that they might not like this and the unbelieving spouse might want to leave, which means divorce. And Paul says they are free to leave if they want. They are free to leave if they want. The believer is not bound, shouldn't feel bound to to save the marriage at all costs. Verse 15, but the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. We we understand that at, at that point, the believer is free. They're not bound by the law of marriage anymore. They are free to divorce and remarry. I think that's what the language of not bound actually means here. Why would, why would there be an additional exception? We've already talked about Jesus's exception that allows divorce in the case of, of, of immorality, sexual immorality. Why would there be this additional exception of abandonment? Well, Paul points out in verse 16, perhaps the Lord would use you to save your unbelieving spouse, but perhaps he won't. You, you, you simply don't know. Because that's beyond your pay grade. Therefore, Paul says, what you're called to is peace. To be at peace in the marriage and to be at peace if the marriage ends. And I think that's really the point of this whole section. It's not being married or not being married that makes you spiritual. It's not who you're married to that makes you spiritual. It's giving your marriage to the Lord. It's submitting your marriage to the Lord's authority. What he says defines and governs your marriage. And then living at peace in that marriage. That's what marks you as spiritual. For a Christian married to a Christian, that means staying married, and if not, staying single, unless you reconcile. For a Christian married to a non-Christian, that means staying married, if they're willing. With divorce and remarriage, an option if they're not. Whatever the situation, God's call is to a contented submission to his authority. His authority over your marriage his authority over your divorce, his authority over your singleness. So so what do we do with this? Well, let's start just by saying, and by the way, this is the longest of the points, but this is going to be a long sermon. Um, let, let, let me start with just the importance, of, like we need to work on our marriages. And, and we need to be people in this church who are working together on our marriages and encouraging our marriages because marriage is hard. I don't need to tell anybody who's been married maybe longer than a week that that's the case. Everybody figures out that marriage is hard at least by the end of the honeymoon, okay? Marriage is hard. Now, marriage is great. I'm not knocking marriage. I love being married to Adrian, but it is hard. And so we need to give ourselves to the hard work of marriage building happy, fruitful, uh, godly marriages. How do we do that? Well, there are tons of good books that we've got on the bookstall that we would encourage you to grab and read together with your spouse. Uh, I I would encourage you, if at all possible, make sure that there's somebody else in this church that knows the inside of your marriage. If the inside of your marriage is just a secret to you and your spouse, then just like I was talking about with sexual immorality, you're in trouble (laughs) because the problem's inside. You you, you want to invite some people in. Not everybody. I get it. And they should be trusted. But invite some people inside your marriage that are for you and that you can go to and talk to when, when things are hard. I would encourage you to make sure that you're talking to your spouse about your marriage. Now, I feel like such a hypocrite in saying this because Adrian will testify. 
I can teach about marriage all day long. But to sit down and talk to Adrian about our marriage, the hardest thing I do, I find it incredibly uncomfortable. I would rather do almost anything else. And it's not because I don't love her. I, oh, I, it, it's, 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 it's vulnerable. It's hard. I feel like a failure. I don't like to talk to her about our marriage. And she will affirm that. But I need to. And so do you. Because as we talk to each other about our marriages, it's, it's not about being perfect, right? It, it, it's not about being right. It's about recognizing marriage is hard. And I'm in it with you. And so we need to be in it with each other. And we're going to have to talk about this. And if you find it hard, I'm right there with you. Um, let me encourage you again to reach out to others for help in, in how you can make that happen more often. Brothers and sisters, we need to give ourselves to the work of protecting and strengthening our marriages. But we also need to think carefully about how to care for those in our church who are not married. And I particularly, because this is on Paul's mind in these, in these verses, I particularly want to speak to those in our congregation who are divorced, maybe divorced and remarried, or, or maybe divorced and not remarried. Um, I'm the child of divorced parents. Uh, my parents divorced when I was a sophomore in college. And not only was that a devastating experience, even for me as a young adult, but we lost our church. Um, there was such stigma attached to my mom for being divorced. My dad, my dad left her. Um, that she had to leave. She was no longer welcome. Now, we were in a pretty small kind of country church at the time. And the affair that had broken up my parents' marriage happened in that church. But then it seemed like no matter what church she went to, she was viewed with suspicion. Married women considered her a threat to their marriages. Lots of questions were talked about behind her back, but never addressed to her directly. My mom is too old to even go to church now. She's in assisted living. But she never really comfortably settled in a church again. That should not be the case here. We should be a church that understands that there are many reasons for divorce, some biblical, some not biblical. But regardless of the reason... This is a human being made in the image of God. And if a professing believer in need of the love and support and grace that a local church brings around them. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say, oh, we should go soft on marriage. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to be a church that loves people who have experienced the trauma of divorce because divorce is always because of sin somewhere, somehow. It damages people. And at that moment, the last thing they need is more stigma. The last thing they need is to be viewed as a threat. Not just for divorce, but for the unmarried. I think one of the most important things that we can be doing as a church is, again, not trying to fix the problem of their unmarriedness, which might not be a problem, actually isn't the problem. But I'll tell you what some of the problems are. There, there, I've talked about stigma. There, there's the problem of loneliness, the problem of feeling excluded on the outside. One of the things that we can do uh, uh, as a church, and particularly for those of us that are married, is look for every opportunity to include the unmarried in our lives as families. Look for ways 
to build relationships. It is so easy to build relationships with people that are just like you. And so the singles hang out together and their divorce recovery groups and the divorce people hang together. And then the married couples hang together, but not all of them, because then it depends on like what age and stage your kids at. So the parents of toddlers are all together and the, 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 the married people without kids are all together. Yeah, I, I get it, but we need to be a family that, that pulls people in that are different that are not in the same age and stage and place as we are. Because in so doing, we do what God created the family to do. And that is to address those very issues of isolation and loneliness and stigma. You guys do this well. I think we can do it better. From my conversations with the unmarried in this church, I know we could do it better. So maybe just think of, of one way you could pull somebody into your family's life that doesn't look like your family. Take that small step this week. What makes us spiritual? It's not our sex lives and it's not our marriages. Finally, and much more briefly, it's also not our station in life. Look at verse 17. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let, it, don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. All right, three times in these verses, and these are at the very center of chapter seven, but three times in these verses, at the beginning in verse 17, in the middle at verse 20, at the end in verse 24, Paul states the principle that governs all of 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Whatever station of life you're in, be content there because the Lord assigned it to you. Now, Paul gives some examples here that would have been deeply relevant to the Corinthians, though they feel a little distant from us. First, he says, you know, if you're Jewish, don't think God would be more pleased with you if you're actually a Gentile. So don't try to get rid of your circumcision. Uh, by the same token, if you're a Gentile, don't think that God would be more pleased with you if you were a Jew. So don't get circumcised. Remain culturally who you are when God called you. Then he picks the second example, which for us, I think, is more difficult. Verse 21, if you're a slave, don't worry about it. Oh my goodness now, Paul, that's like the second time you've said something that I cannot believe you just said that. Don't worry about it? Easy for you to say. And let's just be clear, for years in our country, this verse was used wrongly to justify slavery. That is not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not pro-slavery. He makes clear in, in, in the, in the near, very, very next breath, he makes clear that if the slave can gain his freedom, he should. Now, his point is different. His point is that he shouldn't think that God would be more pleased with him if he were free. That, that he would have a higher status spiritually if he were free. Paul points out there in verse 22, you're already Christ's freedmen. And anyway, all of those free people that, that were called by Christ and saved by Christ while they were free, politically and socially, they're Christ's slaves. Paul's examples may not feel relevant to us, but I think the issue is, who here hasn't thought at some point or another, if I were just in a different station of life, my relationship with God would be better. I'd be more useful for God. I'd be able to be more spiritual. 
if I were just married or if I were just married to someone else, if, if I were just richer, if I were prettier, if I had a high status job, oh, the things that I could do for the Lord. You fill in the blank. I know you have something that you would put into that blank. If I were just, then I could be a better Christian. We think that those things that we put in that blank are signs that God has blessed us. We think that we could be better Christians if we just had that thing. Brothers and sisters, it's not true. Three times in these few verses here, he tells us, be content in the station of life you're in. It's not your worldly status that matters. It's not the station of life that you've attained that marks you as spiritual. What marks you as spiritual? Well, he tells us in verse 19, it is your contented obedience wherever you are. Keeping God's commands is what matters. It's submitting to his authority and his word. It's giving your life to his authority and his word wherever and whoever you are. If you're married, that looks this way. If you're single, that looks this way. If you're divorced, yes, that looks this way. If you're in majority culture or in minority culture, if you've got a high status job or a low status job, if you're rich or poor, at the end, none of those things actually matter. What matters, what marks you as a spiritual Christian is you're taking that life, whatever life you happen to have at this moment that God has given you and you are giving it back to him in contented obedience, allowing his word and his authority to govern your life. Now, don't misunderstand Obedience to the Lord in whatever station we're in marks us as spiritual. It doesn't make us spiritual. To put it another way, being spiritual, which is seen in contented obedience, doesn't draw us near to God. Drawing near to God is what makes us spiritual. I said, Paul states this principle three times, but before he states it for the last time, he, he grounds his entire discussion of this in that simple phrase there in verse 23, you were bought at a price. You know, we've heard that before just back in, in chapter six, verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body, he says in chapter six. Glorify God in whatever station you're in now, in, in chapter seven. Friends, in that phrase, you were bought at a price, is the entirety of the good news of the gospel and the thing that makes all of this possible. Because the reality is, we were all slaves of our passions, of our desires. There's a reason people think that asceticism is what gets you close to God, because we know how much our own desires are the problem. Desires that lead us away from God, not to God. But Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh, and he lived a human life in which he directed all of his desires to God. He lived a life that pleased God because it was in every way a spiritual life, a life that was obedient in every way. And then he gave that life on the cross as a ransom to, to purchase our freedom from slavery to sin. It is through repentance of following all of our own desires and instead faith in Christ that we now belong to him. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you can be today. Today, 
you can be set free from your spiritual slavery, driven by all of your passions and desires, and instead brought into a truly spiritual life of freedom in relationship to God. I would encourage you right now where you're sitting, repent of following your own desires and call out to God. Put your faith in him that he can actually set you free. And if you'd like to talk with me more about after this long sermon is almost over, I'd be really happy to talk to you. I'll be standing right down front. But for most of us here who already know freedom in Christ, understand that it is right here. This is why, and this is how we obey. Just as a spouse's body belongs to their spouse, so we belong to him. We are his slaves. Slaves of grace. Slaves of love. So Christian, I want you to think about new year, new you. I want you to think about becoming more spiritual because you've already been made new. The hard part's been done. Being more spiritual is not a matter of what you're going to give up this year. It's a matter of who you're going to give yourself to. You were a slave to sin. Now you're Christ's slave. Now you're a member of his body. Now you're a part of his bride. Give yourself this year to Christ. As master, as head, as husband. Because he is the one who makes you alive with his spirit. Let's pray. Take a moment. Think about those ways maybe in which you've been thinking wrongly about what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be a follower of Christ, ways in which you've been seeking to draw near to God just through your own power. Confess that to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would not be deceived by the flesh that would tell us that we can draw near to you merely through acts of self-denial and self-abasement. For, for Lord, we know that those things actually deny Christ. Lord, help us to see that you call us to give ourselves to you because you have already given yourself for us. And that wherever you've called us and whatever calling we find ourselves in, you indeed are sufficient. Allow us to trust your word, your authority over our lives. For you have demonstrated so clearly at the cross that you are worthy of that trust. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.